This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I'm your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, and people are just so judgmental these days. I can tell just by looking at them. My co-host is John Passon, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese Grammar Wiki, Sinosplice.com, and once asked me if American websites use cookies, do British websites use biscuits? Seriously, John, I mean, do they use baozi in China? How much Chinese do you need to know in order to speak Chinese? That's what John and I are going to break down in this episode, and you'll have a clean idea of what it's going to take if you want to get conversational. Guest interview is with Finley Davison, who went from being the below-average student in his classes to a Chinese language teacher today. All this and more. Let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming live at you from Utah in the United States. Hey, I'm John Pasden in Shanghai, China. All right, John. Before we kick into things, we have listener reviews and some questions. All right, we're going to start with an email from Mike C. I'm just a beginner, one year in college for fun so far, but I teach Spanish, so a lot of the process of learning comes naturally. Also, need more books. How about more twos and a three or several in there? I started with level one and don't really want to go to the breakthrough level. Not that I don't want to read them, but would rather spend money on something that's going to push me. Next, the podcast, also awesome. You've heard it a bunch already, but it's nice to have a podcast about learning without getting a bunch of lessons. I listen to them when I can actually study, but can sit back and just listen. The guests is such a cool idea. Really like them and the fact that they're not all experts, but people on their learning journey. Finally, shout out to my fellow U of U grad. I'm still in Utah, actually. Good work. Keep them coming. Awesome. U of U grad. Did my undergrad oh. there, University of Utah. And Mike C., the level twos and threes are coming. One thing that we've learned about making books is the more level ones you make, the better you can make level two. The more level twos you make, the better you can make level three. So we are at a point where we can do more good level twos. So those are coming. Okay. Our next question comes from Colin from Canada. And he has a question. He says, it's about commitment. I'm studying kinesiology at a university in Canada with hopes of becoming a physiotherapist. Learning Mandarin is at the stage where it is in between a hobby and something I want to really commit to. So his question is, he's asking us for advice, saying, I'm torn between learning Mandarin and my career path with kinesiology because I can't study kinesiology in China. Should I finish my kinesiology degree or do a Chinese exchange to just focus on learning the language and nothing else, then return to Canada to get my master's degree? Thanks so much, Colin. You know, this sounds to me a little bit more like a life question. I think you need to really ask yourself, what are your goals? Learning Mandarin is something you really want to get into, but is it going to be something that's a really important part of your life that you really need to obtain a high level of proficiency in? If that answer is yes, hey, maybe it makes sense to just take a year off, go learn Chinese. If it's not, and you don't really see how it might fit into your life, maybe you should just keep going through and continue maybe just a little bit slower progression in your language development. But I will say that, you know, my experience, I was graduating with my graduate degree at Purdue. I had a couple of job offers and my wife and I just decided to move to China. We burned the ships. We just turned down the job offers and we just moved to China. And there's a quote, and it's attributed to Mark Twain. He says, 20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than by the ones you did do. So 
throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds in your sails, explore, dream, and discover. And I look back at my life after, yeah, it's been 10 years since we had moved to China. It's made all the difference for me. And what do you think is going to make something that's going to really set you apart or give you some life experiences you may not have otherwise? I'd also like to throw in with a little bit of practical advice. What about the whole travel situation with COVID-19? Maybe it's a bad time to study abroad. Well, there's your answer. Or, you know, financial, maybe you can get a scholarship and it's like free to study in China, whereas your studies are super expensive. Well, maybe that's the answer. I kind of did that. I was thinking of returning to the States to do my master's in applied linguistics, but I realized I could do it in China, even though the academic reputation of the programs weren't as great. And I was able to get a scholarship. Like, I just wanted to stay in China. So, you know, look at practical issues, too. True, true. All right. Okay, guys. So today we're going to talk about an interesting topic. How much Mandarin do you need to know in order to speak? John, what's the answer? Some. Excellent. Uh, All right. Let's kick to our interview now. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't even, I don't even know what you mean by how much Mandarin do you need to know. Well, why, why don't you explain to us what this question is asking, Jared? Hey, how much like words do I need to know? How much grammar do I need to acquire to be able to start communicating in Chinese. We could look at this also on a few different levels. Like we could focus on just one-way communication, be able to just tell an idea, what I want, or where I'm going. And then there's also that second level of being able to understand responses. So maybe let's just talk about that first level. Just what do I need to know, be able to speak? Sounds like you're kind of suggesting almost a travel scenario. Yeah, I think that'd be one way to look at it. I'd say do your best to learn pinyin, you probably aren't going to master the sounds that don't exist in English. I think that a lot of it comes down to a personal situation. Some people are super energized by being able to communicate with very foreign people in a foreign land. If that's you, then why keep your head stuck in a book, right? Like get out there and talk as much as possible with what little Chinese you know and throw in some wild gesticulations and have some fun, right? I mean, I guess if you wanted to make this question more extreme... It's like, should you even go to China if you can't speak any Chinese? And I think that the answer is definitely yes. You know, that reminds me, my first time in China, we had gone to a Chinese restaurant. It was a study abroad. And really, none of us spoke Chinese. We didn't even have any language training before going. And I don't really remember, like, who had ordered or anything. But all the food was on the table. And we were trying to figure out, like, what meat we were eating. And so we were had like this piece of paper and we were drawing pictures of animals and like doing like animal sounds. (laughs) And it failed because we weren't even able to tell what was in the dish because they weren't sure if we were asking like what was in this dish or we wanted the dish with this animal in it. Yeah, I think in some cases you are going to need to have to speak a little bit if you want to be able to at least get by. But see, this whole question reminds me of another issue that comes up a lot, which is like, how hard is it to learn Chinese Like some people really want to pinpoint the exact difficulty. Like what is the number of hours I will need to devote to Chinese to become as fluent as I would in Spanish? I mean, you're not learning Chinese because you have a budget of X amount of hours to devote to a foreign language, right? I wouldn't think so. So let's assume then that you don't want to be doing this pantomiming and drawing pictures of animals. How much do you need to know in order to just have simple daily interactions with Chinese natives. All right. So again, it's going to vary based on the person. For me personally, I had studied Chinese for three semesters at the University of Florida before coming to China. 
and I had a basic foundation, even though I had terrible pronunciation when I arrived in China. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that much. I have worked a lot with Chinese Pod users over the years, and Chinese Pod starts with very short, accessible lessons at the newbie level. A lot of them are only like four sentences, but they're very focused on practical everyday exchanges. So, like, if you did maybe forty of those lessons, and then maybe another eighty elementary lessons, that usually gets people to the point where they can actually understand common everyday questions and reply to them. You know, I think about when I came to China, I had studied maybe fifteen hours before I had come, and I really didn't know hardly anything. It was just so new. But I was really immersed. We had an IE that had was working in our home, and I tried to communicate with her as as often as I could. My friend took me around to the fruit stand and to the Lanjo Lamien, and and you know I think about this. In in that three months, I was able to communicate on a very basic level. I was able to buy things. You know, say I want to go here. I want this. I want that. I'm sure people who had studied in their home country still had better Chinese than I did after that three months. But it makes me think about. Sometimes, what are the education that we're getting in our classes? Is it really relevant to what we're trying to communicate and what we actually need to function, maybe in a Chinese-speaking environment? All right. Well, actually, I have three points to make about all that stuff you just said. Make them. Like number one, as we've said many times in this podcast, the education in Mandarin Chinese used abroad has not been very good in in years past. It's definitely getting better. Point number two, it's very hard. For teachers to really teach pronunciation well abroad, because they don't have the time and the resources to really focus on every student and get their pronunciation good. And number three, once you arrive in China, there are so many distractions and everything's just hitting you nonstop. You got all these tones to learn, and you find out your opinion isn't as strong as you thought. You can't understand what people are saying, blah blah blah. And then on top of all that, you have characters. Just so many people have told me that they feel like. That's what made it all overwhelming, and it really was a psychological block for a while. And in fact, some of the most successful learners that I've talked to, they decided to just totally put characters aside for a while because the auditory challenges, as well as the speaking challenges, were just too much, and they, and they could not handle the characters on top of that. So I had a pretty good foundation in characters before coming to China, and I've talked to a lot of people who are in the same situation, and they have found that that's really helpful. But there's not that much you can do if you went through a formal program. You didn't get tons of listening and speaking practice, and then you're arriving in China and you can't understand what people are saying, and they can't understand you. Yeah, and I think that's one aspect of my story of how I was able to make some progress pretty fast at the beginning. Is because heck, I was going around buying stuff at shops and, and trying to interact with people. Yeah, and this is where personality comes in as well. If you're a naturally extroverted person, then you're going to get more practice. Or if you're like kind of obsessing over every single word that people are using, without any regard to whether or not you might ever use this word again,、uh, you might be creating more work for yourself. I remember having conversations with people, like the, the guards in the apartment complex I was staying at, and they were saying these things, and I was like, "Oh, what is this word? What is this new treasure that I'm collecting?" And you know, I'd write it down, and they'd say these two words that sound similar. I'm like, "They must be important." And I found out later, one of them was McDonald's, and the other one was Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that reminds me. After I was in China, I think for about six weeks, the guy I was living with, he spoke very good Chinese, 
he was really coaching me a lot. He'd made friends with the guard at our gate. And the guard had invited us over to his house for Chinese New Year's Eve for a dinner. It was a very neat experience that I had. But I was trying to tell him that my wife was a good cook. And so he kind of told me how to say it, but I missed a word. And I said, what a tai tai hao chi, which is my wife is delicious, you know, but no, <laughs> I missed the, the what a tai tai de tai hao chi, which is my wife's dishes are very delicious. And when I said that, he just bust up laughing. So that, that, was, a, that was a fun learner experience. <laughs> uh, I think we've all made mistakes like that that we never forget. But if we really want something like specific, like how much Chinese do we need to know in order to communicate? John, I think a great benchmark is really you take a look at our Manor Companion graded readers. If you look at our breakthrough level, it uses only 150 basic characters. And out of that 150 basic characters, we're able to formulate about 200 words that are used in each book. And with 200 words, based on 150 characters, we're able to write an entire story that is roughly five to 6,000 characters long. If you can get down and really understand and read those breakthrough level graded readers, boom, that is going to put you in a very strong position. Yeah. So our breakthrough level books, note that it's not the same 200 words per book, but across books, the words that keep repeating are the really core everyday words that you need to communicate. But getting back to the original question, how much Chinese do you need to study before you can speak? You don't need to know any, but it's going to be kind of hard. If the question is, should I study a semester or two before coming to China to live, then that would be helpful. If the question is, should I listen to some podcasts or use some apps to learn Chinese before coming to China? The answer is yes, you should, because you're never really fully prepared when you get here and every little bit helps. Once again, bring it back to this concept we always talk about is extensive reading. And I came across this in a research paper that was talking about extensive reading. And they said, it's fluency now. And, and I, I was, it made so much sense. It's like fluency now in what you know. Some people say like, oh, I'm going to have to study 10 years before I'm going to be able to be competent in Chinese. And I say, no, if you know those 150 characters, 200 words, get fluent in those. I would say, like, how much do you need to know in order to be able to speak Chinese? Well, can you use what you already know right now? And is that enough to communicate and do what you want to do? If so, that might be enough. Yeah, that rings true for me personally. I remember I had studied three semesters of Chinese at UF. I used the integrated Chinese book, like one of the older versions. But as the date to leave for China became closer and closer. I was thinking, oh, maybe I should read like the next book in integrated Chinese. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized, hey, like what about some of those really basic things that I learned way back in the beginning? Do I really remember those? Can I just like use those immediately when I need them? And I realized I couldn't. And some of the things that I figured I would need weren't really covered by the textbook. So rather than continuing with the textbook series, what I did was I reviewed some of the early lessons and then I got like a phrase book to supplement the textbook, to flesh out my vocabulary for really basic interactions a bit. So I realized that, you know, this fluency you're talking about, the fluency with the basic vocabulary that you really need to be immediately available, I didn't have that. So I worked on that a bit before I came to China. Um, of course, it's never enough. You're not going to be fluent out of the gate, but uh, it definitely helped. And so you went through that textbook, like you mentioned, John. Do you know all of the stuff that you studied? In fact, John, in the interview that we have here with Finley Davison, we talk about this. Right. But also, if you look at your textbook, you got the chapter on greetings and meeting people. You got the chapter on buying stuff at the store. 
Uh, and then you got the chapter on going to the doctor and going to the post office. It's like, come yeah. on, this stuff is not of equal value. I was someone who rarely got sick. When I finally did really get sick, I could barely even talk. So, you know, <laughs> wouldn't have helped. So focus on what's important. Yeah. All right. So in conclusion, how much Chinese do you need to study in order to speak it? Some. Don't be afraid to talk to people, but remember to focus on the useful stuff. Get fluent now in what you know. You can learn Chinese. Oh, yeah. Okay, and now a word from our sponsor. And our sponsor is Mandarin Companion. Oh, yes. And today we are talking about our breakthrough level grader reader, The Misadventures of Zhou Haisheng. And it is a grader reader that's written using only 150 basic characters. I really like The Misadventures of Zhou Haisheng. My wife just finished reading it. And she really enjoyed the aspects of just all like the little boy mischief. And we have four boys in our family. So I think we relate to that pretty well. Most of it takes place in his parents' restaurant. And there's a lot of stuff you can learn about ordering things and money and food and delivery even. You can go out and get it today on Amazon, iBooks or Kobo or wherever you get your books. I hope you like noodles. Enjoy the book. All right. Now it's time for rants and raves. John, what do you have for us? A rant? Or a rave. I have a rave. This rave is for a person. This is a guy who you can actually see on the Mandarin Companion website. There's a guy standing in front of Ivy reading a book. His name is Amani. He was once an intern at All Set Learning. And he's now a Chinese teacher in the U.S. Uh, in a high school. He's quite a handsome fellow. You know, he's a model on our website after all. <laughs> well, the important thing is he has great Chinese. And he's helping lots of people learn Chinese in the States. A new generation of Chinese learners. But why he gets special mention today is that he recently got in touch. He saw the work that we had done at All Set Learning for the COVID-19 vocabulary that we shared. And because the Black Lives Matter issue is huge in the States right now, it's getting a lot of much-needed attention, he realized that it was an opportunity to bring that into Chinese studies. And so he got in touch, and we worked together to make some good resources that teachers can use in their classrooms to have discussions but also, you know, you might be wondering, wait a minute, like Black Lives Matter, if I'm talking to Chinese people, uh, I'm not black. Like, how is this useful? Well, it's useful because Chinese people ask me all the time, like, what is up with you Americans and race? Like, why are mm -hmm. Americans so racist? Chinese are super curious about this. And well, at least I hear quite often, like Chinese people are racist, which they do not agree with. But the fact is that Chinese society is not nearly as diverse as American society. And Chinese people want to hear about it. I really appreciate this, John. You know, I wish I actually had this vocab list that you just put out just a few days ago. On WeChat, I was having uh, some discussions with a former employee of mine who's living back in Chengdu. And he asked me these questions like, what's really going on there in America right now? What's with all these protests and things? I didn't actually have all the vocabulary to tell him you know, what exactly was going on and how to explain it. I had copied some articles that were in Chinese for him. This is a very hard discussion to have in English. In some ways, it's easier in Chinese because you're just so limited. You know, you can mm -hmm. try to explain some of the complexities of the matter just dealing with very limited vocabulary. But, you know, Chinese people are asking you about some aspect of your home country's culture. That's an opportunity to make a real connection and practice Chinese at the same time. And just an example on this, I once remember speaking with a Chinese girl about some racial issues. This was in English, but she said, Chinese people, we're not racist. We don't have black people. 
And uh, I kind of shook oh, my head man. at that. I've heard that many times. I don't think they can get away with saying we don't have black people anymore because there's quite a big African population, especially in Guangzhou and China. That mm-hmm. was in the news recently with COVID-19. Okay, so that is my rave, Black Lives Matter. Okay, and Jared, what is your rant or rave? All right, I have got a, I guess, a rant. The annual National Chinese Language Conference, unfortunately, has been canceled. It was going to be in Florida, and I was going to go there and afterwards go on a cruise with my wife for my anniversary, so that's not happening. So thanks, COVID. But I guess the rave on the flip side of this is that, hey, they're actually doing it online, and it is open to everyone who would like to participate. Yeah, I remember when you first mentioned this, I was originally thinking, oh, man, Florida, that's where I'm from. I should really go home, attend the conference, see my family. But yeah, all that became a non-issue. But it is open now to anyone who'd like to attend. Normally, this conference, I mean, seriously, it costs $1,000 to attend for one person. But now it's open. It's free. It's going to be online virtually from June 24th to 26th. And uh, you can check that out. It's at the asiasociety.org. And or you can just Google National Chinese Language Conference 2020. It's mainly geared towards teachers. But hey, some of you guys might find this very interesting. And there are going to be a lot of interesting online workshops and people talking about different aspects of learning Chinese. And you can ask your Chinese teacher about it if you have one. Maybe your teacher doesn't realize that it's online and open to everyone. Yeah. So get there. And if you want to be a Chinese teacher, maybe you should do this. John, are you going to go? I don't see why not. So my name's Finley Davidson. I'm a Chinese teacher in the UK, teaching a city called Newcastle up in the northeast of England. That's Finley Davidson. He sometimes goes by Finn, but since his dad will be listening to this, this time it's Finley. I've been teaching for about six years. I'm learning Chinese for 11 years now. Two years ago, we both attended the Chinese language conference hosted by the University College of London, but our paths didn't cross until just recently. I think I went for Chinese because I had this vision in my head that it was difficult. And I think the challenge attracted me to it. It had this thing of being the most difficult language in the world. Now, my 11 years later, I sort of realized that that's probably not the case. In fact, I'm a big advocate for the fact that Chinese is not that difficult to learn. Finley has a very progressive view on education, influenced by his teaching of French and Spanish. Speaking with him certainly gave me a fresh perspective on teaching Chinese. However, what I like about his story is that it shows us that even if you're not at the top of your class, you can still become fluent in Chinese. Stay with us. You know, it's interesting that I talk to a lot of people about their stories of learning Chinese, and that's a common theme. It's like, oh, it's a challenge, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's difficult, and it's almost like, why do you climb that mountain, you know, because it's there, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. I knew next to nothing about it. I knew next to nothing about the country, really, beyond it's communist. I had no cultural background in it. I had been there. I, I, this is the other thing. I went oh, there. Oh, really? Yeah. So me and a friend traveled there for about three weeks, traveled from Hong Kong into Sichuan. I held mm-hmm. a baby panda in the panda ah, thing in Chengdu. It's a rite of passage there. you know. Yeah. But I was thinking about this. You, I don't think that really had an impact on my decision to do it. I really didn't feel like I knew anything about China after that trip because I couldn't speak anything. So I was just mm-hmm. sort of fumbling my way around the country asking people things in English. I didn't learn any Chinese when I was there. Well, there's a lot of people who spend many years in China and learn no Chinese. (laughs) Yeah, I've met a lot of them. (laughs) 
I think it was mainly the idea of the challenge. Wow. Well, I can totally understand that. But you said, hey, let's get into this. Let's actually learn Chinese. Can you tell me about your program? Was it was just a university program? Yeah, yeah. So just a uni program. We had about four contact hours a week. And That's it was, not a lot. No. And I still have the textbook that we used. It was called Integrated Chinese. Oh, yes, yes. That's still a popular textbook these days. Yeah, I hated it. (laughs) (laughs) I hated it. I remember in the first few months, I was couldn't do it, basically. Could not do it. I felt like I was falling behind. But yeah, so I, I just did it at uni. And I came in as a beginner. And the program was two years in Newcastle, a year abroad, uh-huh. and then a final year in Newcastle. I'm curious, though, without trying to bag all over integrated Chinese, but what was challenging about that? I mean, you now are a teacher, and I assume that you've employed different teaching methods and principles you know, into your practice, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. But like, what was, I guess, hard for you about that time about learning from a textbook or just specifically that textbook? So I think that it was the pace. <laughs> it was the pace mm. of the the lessons. I remember them really clearly. I've looked back at it since when I started becoming a teacher and I just thought, how, how would anyone expect anyone to be able to do this? Mm. But it was like 30 or 40 characters a week is what we were being asked to learn sort of thing. And uh, I couldn't remember them. I couldn't even make sense of them. One of the things that made me want to teach was, I'd say, the mistakes that were made in my education is probably too strong a way of putting it. But the lack of explanation of characters and their form and their structure and all of that stuff just made them completely alien to me. So I, I couldn't remember a character. That's interesting to hear that because I, this is something I talk about lot to teachers and just other learners that they all encountered well not everyone but but i would say 98 percent of people have encountered exactly what you're talking about right yeah i think a big part of it is that textbooks they're very good at introducing language but they're not very good at recycling it you know they provide example sentences and that's important but it, it's still low context it's not enough right we need yeah, a yeah. lot of recycling of stuff to really get it into our brain and so we can actually start using it yeah And I think the other thing I found is I was amazed by my classmates who could do it. I remember thinking that I'm the worst here. I'm the worst in the class. Like, I'm not getting this and other people are. (laughs) I used to speak to them about how they did it. And they said to me, I go home and I write it loads of times. I just knew that I was never going to do that. I didn't have that work ethic to do that. And so I Mm -hmm. had to find another way of going about doing that. So what did you do? There was a uni student who was in his final year, I think, and I was in my first year. And he gave me a book called, I'm guessing it's famous. I've always seen it as my little secret, but then I suddenly realized that maybe it must be more famous than I realized. A guy called James Heisig. Yeah, the Heisig method. Yeah. Yeah. How to remember your first 1500 characters or something like that. I went and bought it, actually. I never bought anything. (laughs) I was really stingy and started reading it. And it just changed everything. I was suddenly able to do it. Alongside that at the same time, do you know the website Memrise? Yeah, Memrise. So I was one of the first users on that. And I Skyped the the guy, Ed Cook, who founded it as a new user on his website and someone who was really into it and was into trying to learn Chinese. I think Chinese was one of the first things that was on there and helped create some of the 
feeling that the website now has with things that I was wanting to be able to do but couldn't access at the moment because the website didn't have it and he was just building the website at the time. Wow, that's fantastic. The website really helped alongside the HiSig book. Those two things gave me a route to memorizing the characters. So I'm dyslexic. I'd like to hear that. That gives a hope to all the other people in your same boat. Yeah. So I'm dyslexic. I'm not particularly severely dyslexic, but I've certainly got issues around reading comprehension in English. And my reading speed can be a bit rubbish. And if I read quickly, I just don't take anything in. Mm. Um, So reading long documents for me is an absolute nightmare. But I've always had a very good memory. I've loved memorizing lists. I love learning lists of things. I know countries and capitals. I learned the US presidents at one point. Don't know why. Um, (laughs) But I just liked learning lists of things. And so it was always troubling to me that I couldn't remember the characters because I felt like I should be able to. And these two little things, the memorized stuff helped because it suddenly made me realize that I could turn the characters into something else. And the high sig thing helped me break them down. It's weird now. Now I think back about it. I felt like no one really ever taught me about radicals. When I think back, they must have. How could they not have? I just didn't understand the importance of them. The best example I can give is War, the character Mm -hmm. for I. Um, I couldn't remember it. It was impossible for me to remember it. And then the Heisig thing separates War into a hand radical, this thing it calls a halberd. I don't know why I've remembered the name, but I've always remembered the name. It had it halberd (laughs) and then maybe brackets axe or something like that in the book. And you stab your own hand with the weapon. And that's why it means I, because I'm stabbing my hand. And when you connect the top line, it becomes war. And, and from that point, I could write it. Almost now, every time I write war, that little memory runs through my head. And it just made Chinese learning fun for me. And then I was willing to spend hours and hours and hours doing it. Well, that's fantastic. Everyone's got these different things that seem to like click for them, right? It's amazing. I've, I've now interviewed dozens of people about their experiences of learning Chinese. And it's so fascinating to me to see how different everyone has learned. Yeah, but I will give some props, though, to this Heisig method. We actually did a whole podcast episode on it. If anyone listening, it's episode 28, which is a method to remember thousands of characters. We talk about that. And so that's fantastic to hear for you. Look, it worked. Yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah, it really did. But I'm curious to know, like, what happened next? Because, you know, just memorizing characters is one thing, but actually being able to, like, use it, read and things like that is a little different. So what else did you do to kind of, all right, now you took that knowledge and develop into the proficiency? My work ethic is better now, mainly thanks to my wife, (laughs) who I met at university. And she sort of taught me what it was like to do real amounts of work. For my first two years of uni, I was pretty lazy. I liked learning the characters, but I don't think I was getting much better at speaking. I didn't join Mandarin Corner and go and meet the native speaker Chinese kids that were studying in our university. I didn't do any of those things, probably out of a lack of confidence or, to be honest, I don't uh, don't think there's anything else in that. You know, sometimes you're just like, oh, I don't, I'm not good enough to do that, right? Yeah. And then it came to it. So I did my first two years and halfway through your second year, you pick your year abroad city. We had five options. We could go to Beijing, Shanghai, Hainan, Chongqing and Chengdu. They were our five city options. I went to Hainan. Oh, good. I was like, I'm like, dude, knowing what I know now about China, I would definitely go to Hainan. (laughs) 
Yeah. So I went there because we got given the, the options. It basically said Beijing, Shanghai, they're the options that you want to go for if you want home comforts. There'll be lots of Westerners there. Chongqing, Chengdu, they're the sort of middle options. You can pick them if you want to. And there you'll get some home comforts, but it won't be quite so big. And then in at the deep end is Hainan. There'll be less Westerners there. You'll get more interaction with the Chinese. And it's and beautiful. I, and it's like a resort. And it's beautiful. Town. It's like a resort. Um, <laughs> and so I went there. So I reckon I went there as one of the worst speakers in my class. Our days were all the same. Monday to Friday was all the same. The weekends were free. Monday to Friday was 8 a.m. to 12 p.m., like four hours in the morning. We had class, which I, again, participated in, but I wasn't really wild about it. I didn't really enjoy it. (laughs) And then I would go and play basketball on the university basketball courts where you just jump into any game. Yeah, I'm a very sporty person. I love sports. I'd never really played basketball, but I just joined in. The games were five on five, first to five, winner stays on. And there was hundreds of teams waiting on the side of the court ready to come on. It's the same (laughs) everywhere in China, I've now found out. You want to get some playing time, you better win. (laughs) Yeah. And then in the evenings, I would play football. But I did all of that with Chinese people. I very rarely played with the other Lao Wai. Yeah. Uh, And so I just chatted to people. And I think I came back, I wouldn't say one of the best, but I came back a lot better. And that's where I learned to speak. I learned to speak in China, chatting to locals and playing sports. Yeah. That's the thing that interests me. I said I was bored in class, probably was quite bored in class. I didn't really enjoy it, but I love sports and I'll always love it when I'm playing sports. And so the chance to play sports and speak Chinese was what I wanted. That's great to hear that. We always talk to people about what can you do to really learn and, or use your Chinese. You know, one of the common pieces of advice I hear and I do give is like, you know, get a hobby or yeah. something you're interested in that you can interact with other Chinese people. And that, boom, that's exactly what you did. It's like yeah. sports was it. Yeah. There's a lot of people who are into movies and stuff. I think lots of my friends at uni got good at Chinese faster than me because they started watching Chinese movies. I'm not a big movie fan, particularly not like artsy Chinese movies. And I never really had the patience to put time into doing that. But when I got to China, I suddenly realized oh, I can I can use my Chinese in, in the way that I love doing, which is playing sport. Um, can you remember like any stories about that where you were able to make a real connection or something on the court? So I had a friend there who was from Kazakhstan. So he was another foreign student, but his Chinese was brilliant. And he was there at the beginning. And I met him quite early on. I played football with him. And I used to watch and listen to him speaking to the Chinese people on our team when I was I wasn't as good at my Chinese at this point. I was just arrived. And I remember speaking to him and I would speak some Chinese. And one time he pulled me to one side and he told me all the words you're saying are great. The tones are really good, but you don't sound like a Chinese person. And Chinese people aren't going to really understand you until you sound more Chinese. You can't just say it. You have to say it and mean it sort of thing. I remember he went away for quite a few months in the middle of my time there, my year there. And then he came back at the end and he told me that he listened to speaking to Chinese. We were playing football together and he just said, you've got it now. That's what you did. And so that was a big light bulb for me, I think, was the fact that I've got to listen to what Chinese people sound like, listen to the colloquial Chinese and imitate it. And that's what I started doing. I think my Koyu is probably quite sort of colloquial 
I don't think I haven't I haven't got any Hainan Hua or anything like that, but I think it's a little bit a little bit colloquial, and I don't think I'd do very well doing a formal speech in Chinese. But chatting to people and engaging with people when I go back now, engaging with market stalls and people like that, I love those conversations. I can have them all day. It's just so much fun for me. Wow, that's great to hear that. It takes that like practice and interaction, right, to develop some of those skills that you can't develop other ways. Yeah, exactly. I was never going to develop them in a classroom. That was never going to happen. It came from the need to go out and buy fruit. That's where those skills came from. So where did you get to the point now where you felt like, all right, I'm proficient or even get to that level where you say, hey, now my Chinese, I feel like it's good enough to teach. Oh, I'd say when I finished my university year there, I felt like I took a backward step when I came back. Just being out of the country, it it was so hard for me to practice in the same way. I think I joined when I came back in my final year, the foreign students football team, which was full of Chinese kids, just so I could get some Chinese people to chat to. And I started having a few more Chinese mates who I would chat to. But I've always found that when I'm in England, I default to speaking English. I'm not good at talking to someone in a foreign language when I know that they can speak English. I find that really difficult. Just a personal thing, I guess. Well, I'm curious now to understand, like, how have you taken some of your experiences in learning Chinese and how have you used these to help other people learn the language? Because you have a lot of students you teach. Yeah. I mean, what have you done differently in the classroom and with students as opposed to maybe what you wouldn't have done differently? I always told myself I never wanted to be a teacher. We were told when we were at university that we could go into business and we'd be going and working for people like Mars or like Coca-Cola and stuff like that. And we'd be the ones doing the business in China. That's the sort of dream that I was sold by university. Uh, I came out of university. I actually went for an interview at Secret Services in the UK. <laughs> oh, yeah, MI6. So was... Yeah, it was GCHQ. They're the people who listen to the communications from around the world in the UK. And I went mm-hmm. and sat in this interview room and there was a Chinese girl sat opposite me and a, a tape recorder got put in front of me and I had to translate what was said in the tape recorder. I had a dictionary mm-hmm. and I didn't understand a word of it. <laughs> oh, wow. It was awful. And the girl opposite me was just scribbling down everything. And it was something about conflicts in the seas, about the fishing stuff going on uh-huh. off, off South China Sea. South China Sea. <laughs> I didn't understand a word of it. It was awful. Oh, no. Uh, and so simultaneously alongside doing that, I remember when I got into my final year of uni, I volunteered. I don't know why I did this, but I volunteered to go into local schools and teach Chinese for free so I could try out some of my teaching ideas, some of the ideas that I've had about how the high sig stuff and seeing if I could turn that into a classroom lesson and stuff like that. And then it all snowballed from there. I got into classrooms. I loved it. I suddenly thought, well, teaching's the thing for me. And so I trained and then it's all developed from there. The first few ideas being all stuff about imagery, basically like the Chinesey stuff. Come across uh, Shaolan's Chinesey yeah. books. Basically, that's where everything developed from was my desire to go into a classroom and in, engage kids in that process of turning characters into pictures. And everything else I've done developed from there. The one thing I would say is that's influenced my teaching more than anything is the fact that I'm a European languages teacher as well. Oh, okay. Um, so I teach French, Spanish, and Chinese. Uh, that's quite I've, impressive. 
Yeah. <laughs> and so I've taught Spanish to a higher level than I've ever taught Chinese, to be honest. European languages have had a long history of teaching in the UK. And the techniques that are involved there are very, very well developed to kids in the UK. And what I found was when I started teaching Chinese, no one was using those techniques in Chinese. Mm -hmm. So there's all this gamified learning and in Spanish and French, every lesson is absolutely amazing. And then I'd go into Chinese lessons and they'd be really dull, really dry. And so I just transported everything across from my French and Spanish teaching into Chinese and it worked really well. So I teach oh, it like wow. a European language. And so what are some of those differences then, things that may be more gamified? What are some specific things that you do in the Chinese classroom that you've carried over from the other languages? So this might not seem revolutionary, and I often get quite a large sense of imposter syndrome when I'm uh, talking about <laughs> teaching, because I think this can't be that amazing what I'm doing, but people who watch me teach seem to like it, so I don't really know what to do. But for example, when I taught dates in Chinese, I've taught hundreds of kids the words for birthday and dates and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I started doing an activity where I just put up a, a set of dates on the board and they would be famous English or American holidays. And the kids would have to work out what that holiday was. But I wouldn't tell them anything about it. I would just put the dates up on the board and let them go at them. And one of them would work out the first one. First one's always Valentine's Day. And so one of them would sit there and they'd get it and they'd go, okay, it's the 14th of February. What's the 14th of February? The mate would whisper to them, it's Valentine's Day. And I'd be like, <laughs> and then they'd realize maybe they're all dates that mean something. And then they'd look down the mm. list and they'd see the 25th of December and they'd go, oh, that's Christmas. And suddenly the reading was being done as a secondary idea. The reading was a secondary thing. What they wanted to do was win the game. Mm -hmm. find out what all the dates were. Like I said, it doesn't seem revolutionary, but I didn't see that being done in Chinese classrooms. I saw it being done in Spanish and French classrooms. It makes total sense to me because in that example you shared, you've made the language relevant yeah. to the learner. It's like, yeah. oh, what I'm studying now, it's not just something that my teacher's just saying, you have to learn this. It's now you've hooked them and it's caught their attention and what you're teaching becomes relevant and they become engaged. Yeah. And we just gradually, me and my friends who I trained with, who are now also successful teachers around the UK, we were just doing this constantly, all challenging each other to come up with these different activities. And, and I still am. I've got a member of staff in my department at the moment who he often does a murder mystery type activity. Oh, that's got to be fun. Yeah, it's amazing. One teacher has died. We need to figure out which other teacher killed them. And there'll be basically <laughs> some sentences that have certain, if they're doing clothes, then the murderer, they'll say the murderer was wearing something black, was wearing a hat, and we'll give some other bit of information about them. So there's three clues that you need to find, and there'll be five teachers, all of which have two of the bits of information, but only one of them has all three. And that activity is brilliant because then the kids, they want to read. As soon as you get them wanting to read, you've cracked it. And so we're just trying to challenge all the time how we can get kids to want to listen and want to read Chinese. That's the kicker, right? I've experienced that with our graded readers. In fact, I remember this one time that we had the students that were reading, I think, The Prince and the Pauper, one of our graded readers. 
And the kids, after the first couple of chapters, they were getting engaged in the story. And when they came to class, before the bell rang, before class start, they're like, can we start reading? And I'm yeah. like, yeah, please start reading. And I'm like, no, you can't read now. No, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're yeah, like, go at it. And, and then the bell rings, class is out, and they're kind of like engaged in a conversation about the book. And they're kind of like still talking in Chinese. And I hate for this to end, you know? And so now that was really the start of my teaching and, and it still keeps developing. But now I'm working in a school where the knowledge of China is not good. There's kids there that really don't know anything about it. And so these kids really often don't have any real understanding of China or Chinese. So now we're developing a scheme of work to try and engage them first in the culture and then gradually introducing the language through a process. One thing I've started trying to do is use youtube videos youtube series chinese youtube series to try and engage the kids and picking out language from the youtube series and then letting them use that language about their own lives for what i understand you've done some research in this area or done trying some experiments they get got uh, what derailed a little bit by covid but what were you doing and how was that working out the way i'm trying to teach chinese now is to think about how i would have wanted to be taught it when i first started knowing what I know now, what order would I have wanted to be taught in? And mm -hmm. so now we're trying to teach it in an order that is manageable all the time, it's, particularly in terms of the characters, and also then fun and engaging. So we teach about six weeks of culture at the start and do no Chinese at all. Then we teach about six weeks of foundation skills. So we teach some pinyin and we teach radicals and we teach them some characters very much like the high sig method does of just really random words that you would never use in any other way but that absolutely fit character stories so like the moulin sun the tree two trees three trees type things oh, oh. moulin sun yeah 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 my my tones are awful and so i teach stuff like that that really you're never going to use that in real language but we teach it because it's fun to learn and we can create pictures out of it and do lots of artwork with it and calligraphy and stuff like that. And then beyond that, I started using this YouTube series because I was finding when I was teaching the normal way, the traditional way, you could call it, I'd get to a point where I'd start teaching them something like hobbies. It's often a topic that we teach at that sort of time. And I'd teach them Kanshu and I'd teach them. I don't know, Shang Wang, and they can do those because the characters are simple enough. But then someone throws in, I don't know, Tan Dian Ying, and the kid can never learn Ying because it's just such a step up from the characters that they were learning up until that point. Mm -hmm. I sort of thought, okay, I want to reorder this then and not introduce that character then because I feel like it's too much for an 11 year old to suddenly be given that character and be expected to learn it. Because the other thing, you give a kid ying to learn and say, okay, but you don't need to write that one yet. Well, that's really weird for a kid. Yeah. You're going to know this word, but you're not going to know how to write it. I really didn't like that. And so we've used this YouTube series called The Big Boss. I don't know if you've come across it. It's a YouTube series about, it's like a teen series in Chinese about the fight to be the class monitor. And it's a really lazy girl and she actually becomes class monitor but she doesn't really want to be it she just wants to annoy the traditional class monitor 
And so it's funny, it's got teen comedy, it's really engaging for the kids. And we suddenly found that these kids wanted to watch that series. Oh, good. And so we basically took language from that. And I've effectively, for that bit of the year, and now I'm planning and doing it more widely because it went quite well, I'm sort of ignoring any traditional avenues of what subjects to learn first. And I just teach the subjects that I enjoy teaching the most. (laughs) That's important because now you get into things that are relevant. I've talked to a lot of other teachers and things about this too, is that some people it's like, oh, we have a section. Now we're going to learn about the post office and you're going to learn all the steps. Well, nobody goes to the post office anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and, and if you're in China, you're definitely not going to be going to the post office. You know, it's more relevant to learn about Kwaidi, you know, like delivery or something. You look on things that are more functional and relevant to their life. And uh, yeah, I, I think that sounds like a great approach. Yeah, they basically learn Han, that's their first topic, and mm. learn how to use it to talk about different people's personalities and mm. then learn about their families. So then they can talk about their family's personalities. And I can get so much out of that. And the kids get really, really fluent and confident talking about a really niche topic. And it just massively boosts their confidence. And really, at that point in their learning, I'm not really fussed about anything other than them feeling happy, learning Chinese, enjoying it. There's no real points that I have to hit. I don't have to hit that they have to be able to do this by this point in their learning and they have to be able to do that. There's no targets. I just teach them whatever I want and keep them engaged. And once I've got them engaged, then they can motor when I really start cramming more stuff into their lessons. You know, this is a little bit of the difference between like proficiency versus knowledge, you know? Yeah. It's just like you can learn these long lists, you could memorize the entire textbook and all that stuff, but if you can't use it, you don't know how to speak, you can't write with it or whatever, what good is it to you? And so that sounds to me what you're doing, you're engaging people, you're helping them become proficient in sectors and building pillars, if you will, of the language that they can then start building a platform on. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like once they have that little proficiency, then it's much easier to build off of that. Yeah. You have a foundation. Yeah. Yeah. And and they need to know certain things for their GCSE, but I don't need to teach them that in the first 18 weeks of them learning Chinese. Well, Finley, I want to hear from you. Like, what advice would you give to someone who's learning Chinese right now or just decides, hey, I want to start learning Chinese? From a language point of view, from a sort of character's point of view, I would say play with the radicals learn what they mean and break down characters and learn how to break down characters because until you, I think you break them down, they're really difficult to learn and understand. And you can get so much out of a really good radical. But from a spoken point of view, I feel like I would say try and lose your inhibitions and just get stuff wrong. Chinese people are so good at allowing you to make mistakes, unlike many European countries, France in particular, You go to France, you make a mistake, they'll speak to you in English. Chinese people will let you make mistakes for the cows come home and they will just keep trying and keep helping you. So just lose those inhibitions. Don't worry about making mistakes and just go for it. Excellent advice. I appreciate that. Well, Finley, thanks so much for taking time with us to share with us your experiences and your perspectives on learning the language. It is very illuminating to me. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. It's it's been really, really good. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, grandparents, grocer, glass blower, sandwich maker, sidewalk chalk artist, earth mover, and the one guy named Will. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mannercompanion.com. Apologies to John Cena, we just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is James Harper. I'd like to thank our guest, Finley Davison, and of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Paston. See you next time.